Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our special guest for this podcast, Professor Vosolska, who is with the Stanford School of Medicine. Professor Vosolska is a recognized scientist in the area of stem cell studies, and she is also the recent recipient of the Outstanding Young Investigator Award presented annually by the Society for Stem Cell Research. Professor Vasolska, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you very much, John. So, as I indicated in the introduction, you have a keen interest in a very active program as it relates to stem cell research. Perhaps you could give our audience just a brief overview of your interest and where your research is leading. We actually are coming to the stem cell field from the field of epigenetics, and what really got us interested in using stem cells, and in particular embryonic stem cells as a model, is our deep, long-standing interest in how epigenetic processes during development unravel information that is stored in our genome to produce distinct cell-type-specific epigenomes. So we all started as a single cell, a totipotent zygote, which then in the process of development is able to produce different tissues and organs. And these different cells all have the same genetic information, and yet obviously they're specialized to perform different functions. So how this process occurs on the level of gene regulation and chromatin regulation is of great interest to us. In particular, the last decade brought many breakthroughs as to the role of chromatin, which is a physiological template of our genome, in establishing those tissue-specific gene expression patterns. And by chromatin regulation, I mean covalent modification of histone proteins, which wrap and package our DNA, DNA methylation itself, processes like ATP-dependent chromatin remolding, which utilize energy of ATP to move nucleosomes around, as well as transcription factor and their networks and feedback loops, which also participate in maintenance of gene expression programs. And perhaps a newcomer to the field is our non-coding RNAs, which also seem to play a role in gene expression regulation. We have a conundrum. So we have those cell-type-specific epigenomes, and those are typical of a distinct specific cell type and can be propagated often through many cell generations. So we have a memory in the system. But at the same time, we need to retain plasticity, as in development, we have differentiation, and one cell type can be turned over to another, etc., etc. So this combining the memory and plasticity in epigenetic regulation is what interests me the most. So if I understand correctly, while we all have a genetic map, epigenetics actually adds some more detail to the cellular structure than what one gets from just the plain genetic map. Is that a correct understanding? Yes, absolutely. So we have information that is stored in our genome, but epigenetic processes organize this information to produce distinct patterns of gene expression and then result in different phenotypic outcomes and specializations of different cells in our body.
So while your studies are very fundamental in scientific investigations, where might this lead in terms of clinical applications someplace down the road? Let me maybe backtrack and first tell you why embryonic stem cells are such an interesting model for us, because I think this will be where I think down the road clinical applications will come. Embryonic stem cells are remarkable in that they can indefinitely self-renew in culture while maintaining pluripotency. And pluripotency is this unique feature that allows them to differentiate to all cell types present in the human body. So they can make any cell type, and now we are developing protocols where we can take human embryonic stem cells and differentiate them in vitro in the dish to different cell fates. And that, of course, in itself has potential for regenerative medicine as those cells can be then used as potential sources for cell replacement therapies. But what we are interested in the most is what are the processes that determine, first of all, the unique properties of embryonic stem cells. So what does it mean to be pluripotent on the gene expression level and chromatin level? And we're also interested in what gene expression changes are associated with pushing embryonic stem cells into different specific fates and differentiating them to neurons, neural crest cells, mesodermal cells, endodermal cells, etc. Or we'll, we're going to come back to neural crest maybe a little bit later because those, this cell type is of special interest to us. Obviously, if we can learn how this regulation occurs, we can learn how to manipulate it in vitro, and this will not only advance basic science and our fundamental understanding of stem cells, but also will lead to our understanding of, for example, how to make induced pluripotent cells in vitro in the best way such that they resemble embryonic stem cells the most. And this, again, has a great potential for, for regenerative medicine and for therapies. How to push embryonic stem cells to differentiate to specific lineages. All this knowledge will come from our understanding of gene and chromatin regulation. So one of the things you just indicated is that you have a vision that you might be able to use uh, patient-derived pluripotent stem cells in lieu of embryonic stem cells. I've seen in the literature that there are some of your colleagues that believe this is possible. And I, I gather from what you just said that while you believe that may be possible, you think that your studies can provide insight into how to realize those outcomes. Yes, because... As we're striving to understand what it means to be pluripotent, what chromatin regulators, what transcription factors are involved in the process, we're beginning to understand what are those critical properties that allow stem cell to be stem cell. And if we have a good understanding of that, then we will be able to better assess whether the pluripotent stem cells that we as a field are able to generate now in vitro, are they really stem cells? What do we have to do to perhaps improve their potential? Recent work from several laboratories indicates that some of the induced pluripotent stem cells retain some of the epigenetic memory of their past 
space. Obviously, we would want to make sure that this memory is erased prior to differentiating them to other cell types that we would eventually put in the patient, etc., etc. And I think while down the road, clinical applications are enormous, I also want to stress that basic science and basic understanding of these processes will provide fundamental knowledge for regenerative medicine and will lead to discoveries for which uses and implications we're not yet realizing. I want to pitch here the basic research that is done on embryonic stem cells because I think that this will be fundamental in the future. And obviously now another critical issue is some people are saying that, well, if we can make induced pluripotent stem cells from adult cells in vitro, why do we even need embryonic stem cells? Of course we need them because they're our gold standard. We know that these are the cells that will give rise to all tissues and organs in the embryo. So if we have to understand them and use them as a comparisons with induced pluripotent cells in order to know what we're working with. Therefore, both embryonic stem cells and induced pluripotent cells are equally important and equally promising avenues for us to investigate and to understand. Yeah, I think we certainly all agree that a fundamental understanding of the basic science is important. In terms of what I would call applications-oriented studies and clinical translation, so your pioneering studies are important in that perspective. So you had mentioned earlier some other cell types that you have an interest in. Perhaps you can elaborate a bit? I mentioned neural crest cells that we are very interested in, and I should perhaps explain what neural crest is. Most people are not familiar with these cells and why they are interesting to us and why they generally are incredibly fascinating and with great potential implications for human health. So neural crest cells are transient cell population with stem cell-like properties. They form during human development at three to five weeks of gestation when neural tube closes, those cells delaminate from the neural tube and migrate throughout the body to contribute to different tissues and organs. And the reason why they are fascinating for a person who studies epigenetics, like me, is that these cells have remarkable epigenetic plasticity. They can make over 100 different cell types in the human body, so roughly half of the cell types that are represented in the human body. And even though they are ectodermal in origin, you know, ectodermal cells mostly give rise to neural tissues, neurons, neurons and glia, they can make neurons and glia, and in fact, our peripheral neural system is mostly derived from the neural crest. But they also make mesenchymal cells, and most of our craniofacial mesenchymes, so bones and cartilage of our face, are derived from the neural crest. So you really have acquisition or in vivo reprogramming event that accompanies neural crest formation. So why is it important? Well, it's important from the human health perspective because congenital neurocrystopathies, so disease of the neural crest we refer to as neurocrystopathy, 
are among the most common congenital defects, and we have many syndromes that are associated with defects in neural crest formation, such as the George syndrome, Charge syndrome, Vardenburg syndrome, but also non-syndromic congenital defects such as cleft lips and palate or frontonasal dysplasia are also associated with neural crest defects. In addition, while some of the most aggressive cancers are of neural crest origin, and those include both melanoma and neuroblastoma. And this neural crest cell population is fascinating also from evolutionary point of view, as this is really what facilitated development of a vertebrate face and adaptation to different lifestyles and predator environments. So we have this unique cell type, but it arises, as I mentioned, three to five weeks of gestation. So how can we study it? It's very difficult, obviously, to study human neural crest cells. So what we have done, and this is a work done by a very talented postdoctoral fellow in my lab, Ruchi Bajpai, Ruchi developed a method of efficient derivation of human neural crest cells from human embryonic stem cells. So this is the potential of embryonic stem cells coming in, as I mentioned before, that you can derive any cell type. And indeed, we were able to derive human neural crest cells that not only expressed markers of the neural crest, but they also have this enormous differentiation potential characteristic of the neural crest cells in vivo, and they are migratory. So now we can use those cells to study some of the syndromes that I mentioned that are associated with defects in the neural crest. And one of the syndromes, which is called CHARGE, involves mutations in ATP-dependent chromatin remodelers. And using the, our in vitro neural crest model, we were able to show that the likely defect that occurs in CHARGE involves defect in the formation of this multipotent migratory neural crest cells. And we validated our results also using in vivo model, complemented it with Xenopus model and Chick model. However, uh, as I say, embryonic stem cells and their differentiation were key here for, for developing both genomically and biochemically tractable model to study the mechanism of the disease. And now we are developing, or we're deriving IPS lines from charged patients. We're going to compare their behavior in the assays that we developed to normal neural crest cells that are derived from wild-type embryonic stem cells. And this all will help us understand the mechanisms underlying several of those syndromic neurocrestopathies. This is very interesting, and my recollection from previous reading is that charge syndrome occurs about one in every 10,000 births worldwide. But what I found interesting is that usually the infant is the only child in the family that exhibits that particular syndrome. Yes, because it's a spontaneous genetic disease which means that a mutation in a single allele is enough to cause the syndrome. In fact, mutation of a single allele of gene called CHD7, that's a remodeler that I mentioned, that we showed is critical for gene regulation in neural crest cells. 
But what it means is that there are very few familiar cases of charge. Usually neither mom nor dad have charge or have mutations or have a history of charge in the family. But what happens, there is spontaneous mutation that usually happens in the germline, so for example in the sperm. And if that sperm containing the mutation fertilizes the egg, then the child from two parents that did not have a mutation in CHD7 will be born with charge. And it's a really devastating syndrome that affects multiple tissues and organs. It's a leading cause of hearing problems and vision problems, craniofacial malformations, etc., etc. In fact, as for spontaneous disease, 1 to 10,000, 1 to 8,000, is quite common, and it's not commonly diagnosed because it's not a familiar syndrome. Very interesting, and your studies seem to be very promising in terms of getting a handle on this particular syndrome. So if we reflect back a bit on some of the areas that your work could be applicable in the future, and some of these you've mentioned, but certainly aging, cancer, degenerative diseases, developmental defects, and mental retardation. As I say, some of these you've addressed in your comments to this point, but are there any other of these areas that might be worth briefly highlighting for our audience? One thing that I should mention that, again, I think will bring breakthroughs to the stem cell research and already is bringing big breakthroughs is the rapid progress in deep sequencing technologies. Mm-hmm. So now it makes possible for us to analyze epigenomes, look at specific histone modification patterns and transcription factors and chromatin regulators on a genome-wide level in different cell types. So, for example, we've done this type of analysis in the neural crest cells to discover regulatory elements such as enhancers that combine or integrate signals that are coming from epigenetic environment with what is encoded by the genome. Why I think this will be this type of approach of discovering regulatory elements on a genome-wide scale using genomic approaches, why I think this is going to be important for human health in general. The reason for that is that in most genome-wide association studies, the most knit single nucleotide polymorphisms that have been associated with various diseases are not in the genes themselves, but are within the vast non-coding space of our genome. So what does it mean? It may mean several things, but one of the interpretations is that these mutations or those genetic variants that are associated with predispositions to different diseases are caused by differences in regulatory sequences rather than the coding sequences. Because as I mentioned, those regulatory regions are often located tens or hundreds of kilobases away from promoters. And we did not have a good genome-wide method for discovering this, but now with the progress of genomics and epigenomics, we do. So what we can imagine in the future is identifying those elements and associating to specific mutations in those elements of specific genetic variants 
with predispositions for diseases, and this will be probably quite important for developing new diagnostic tools and also for determining predisposition in all particular disease in multigenomic diseases. I think this is a really very interesting area that may combine progress with genomics and novel sequencing technologies with stem cell research to really aid in understanding what determines predisposition to disease. So one of the things that I think you've said indirectly is that with the maturation of these technologies, we're really talking about personalized medicine as opposed to the current approach of just treating symptoms in general. Yes, absolutely. We will have our genome sequenced in our lifetime. I, I have no doubt about it with the cost of sequencing going down so quickly. Out of curiosity, what is the cost of a genome sequence at this point? Probably it would be around $10,000 per genome if you're doing it on a reasonably large scale. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that will continue to go down. But that will continue to go down. Right. It was unthinkable to sequence a human genome for $10,000 at a decent coverage, and now it's entirely realistic. So I think within five years it may, in fact, be a standard in medical treatment, treatment right. which right. obviously has its own ethical issues and privacy issues associated with, other than the science. The scientists and the ethicists and the physicians will address that as the technology matures. So this has been a very interesting discussion, and I thank you for sharing your insight and your progress relative to these pioneering areas. As we conclude this podcast, I will remind our listeners that we'll post your web link on the podcast website so if individuals have an interest in further exploring your studies, they can read up on those activities. And as we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We welcome suggestions in terms of topics that might be covered in subsequent podcasts. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again, I welcome you to join us at the next podcast with another exciting interview. Thank you and best wishes to all. 